Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone. My name's Deb Rucker, and this is My Millennium Money Medical, and we're back with Ryan from One Medical Locum Agency. This is part two. I've got a few more questions to go. Part one was last week, so if you haven't listened to it, it makes sense to listen to it before this one because everything feeds into this particular episode. We'll go into specifically about the rates and cancellations of shifts. How does that work? What happens if a locum doctor actually really enjoys their work and they want to join the actual hospital network? How would that work? and also talk about overseas and also recruitment as well. So, Ryan, you ready to go again? (laughs) Yep, let's go. (laughs) Let's get started. Now, if you're new to the channel, don't hesitate to contact me on Facebook or Twitter for any specific questions you may have. And remember the three main aims of this uh, channel, education, empowerment and entertainment. So, Ryan, just continuing on with part one, um, the question that I had from some of the locums is, how does it work if I'm a locum doctor, I really enjoy some of the locum work that I do and the hospitals that I work with, and now the hospital's advertised for a position, right? How does it work in terms of, can I just apply for the position and start working there? How does that work with the contracts with, you know, one medical as an example, or generally as a locum, can I then transfer that and become a permanent doctor for that particular hospital? Yeah, and again, like a, like a lot of things in the locum market, again, it's going to vary by client by client and it's going to vary by state by state as to what contractual arrangements are in place between uh, the agency and the hospital. Ultimately, certainly from one medical point of view, we would never stand in the way of somebody getting the right position that they want. Um, it's not in our long-term business interest. Um, there's a fundamental gap in medical recruitment with the perception that locum and permanent is in, and, and what we call temp to perm, where they go from a locum doctor to a permanent doctor is two different things, where it is actually in, in normal recruitment terms, it is actually the same thing. It's the supply of a staff person to, to, a, to a site. Um, there's often some form of temp to perm arrangement in place with a lot of the main states and territories agreements. Um, some of them are fair and reasonable to the agency um, and some of the, and, and to the hospital as well. And some of them, unfortunately, are quite uh, unfair to the agency, which is a bit of a bone of contention in our world. But um, some hospitals are happy to pay them. They see the value in the services because it's the ultimate dream for everyone involved, really, because they've had a try before they buy situation mm. to a certain extent with a doctor in both directions. So the doctor's been there. They've enjoyed the work. They've liked the option of going there on a permanent basis. The hospitals had the doctor work there. They've enjoyed having the doctor work there and they're happy for them to go down that permanent route. But uh, but again, there, there would often be some form of contractual piece behind uh, behind the scenes in terms of the agreements. And uh, we try our best to manage that as best we can. But sometimes, unfortunately, we are not paid for that service that we provide. Um, it's fortunately becoming less. Um, but, uh, but it is something that we do provide as a service. And um, as I mentioned at the start of uh, the last week's episode, um, you know, we go to a lot of time and effort in sourcing and finding candidates. It requires a full team setup. We, as I say, we, we're, we're probably a mid-tier agency, and we've got um, and twenty staff involved in finding and securing and onboarding and placing these doctors on a daily basis. And we're trying to look after our commercial interests. And um, I suppose one of the two things to mention as well on this topic: um, some of the most joyful things that we've actually ever done have been temp to perm placements. Um, we've sent sent somebody to somewhere that they would have never in a million years have thought of living, and they're pleasantly surprised when they get there. They fall in love with the community, the life lifestyle, the climate, all of these types of things. As I say, I think there are one or two doctors that I might have done an attempt to perm placement with over 12, 13, around 12 years ago, probably, that are still working in those same locations now, uh, 12 years down the line. So it's uh, um, certainly been good value in that context. Um, 
We also had uh, we've also had doctors pull out of permanent offers from hospitals um, in the past when the hospital has um, made them uh, made us and them aware that they're not going to honour the um, the arrangements that are in place um, with regards to the temp to perm agreement. It's quite an interesting situation. So they've, they've they've fundamentally not wanted to potentially work for a hospital that's not treating their suppliers fairly because they're. They don't feel it's right, and they're concerned that um, you know that might be indicative of how they might be treated um, if they become a permanent staff member. So it's just a bit of an hopefully interesting subnote there. Interesting. So I've actually um, been involved with I don't know if this is the right term, but buying out the locum. So essentially, the locum expresses an interest in joining the team. We obviously engage various locum agencies and we just ask the locum agency, hey, your doctor wants to join our team. We want to have them on our team. And then there's this sort of penalty or like a buyout fee. I assume that buyout fee is different based on the state and based on the locum agency. Is it very individual based or is there like a standardised rate buyout fee across the state or across the nation? Again, it's it, without sounding again like a broken record, it varies everywhere. Yeah, yeah I um, thought so. What, yeah. We, what, what we would often do as a business is we would evaluate the situation, how long the doctor's been working there, what their real intentions are. You know, is it, are they hopefully going to become a long-term permanent fixture for that hospital? Yeah. Um, and we would often try and make it as attractive to the hospital and, and as and as as relatively cost effective as possible it's not in our interest to be overcharging hospitals we're not in that game we're just trying to get paid a fair fee for a fair service and we've got a very limited amount of clients that we have to treat very well and because we again as we mentioned in last week's episode you know 90 percent of our business is coming from uh, ultimately eight clients across the eight states and territories Mm. Um, and which is why we're always keen like with your medical administrators and exec teams to try and get more of an understanding of both sides of the fence here so that we can hopefully work together for cost effective better outcomes we've um we've been involved in quite a lot of things over the years dev Um, we've we've created things that we coined like lower cost rotational models for clients out in rural areas where we've um i think i mentioned this previously when we spoke but um where we have been able to secure locums at a lower rate than the going market rate at the time for a longer term commitment. Yep. And all parties get get a sort of a, a win-win outcome. And it is it is direct cost savings to the uh, to the to the health service as well. Um, so we, we're always trying to be be a partner and be useful and be you know providing a good service instead of for want of a better phrase, making a quick buck and running, you know. Mm. Yeah, so I think for doctors listening in, I think it's really relevant. So if you're a locum and you're approaching a particular hospital, uh, be aware that there may be contractual obligations for the hospital to pay out a fee as a penalty to the locum agency uh, for that particular doctor for you to join the team permanently. So it's not as if that you can just randomly join. Um, And there's no point hiding the fact because eventually it's just sour grapes if they find out if you'd switched over. So I think open honesty transparency if the agency has treated you well then they need to be paid the buyout fee it's as simple as that and surprisingly a lot of health networks you know don't really mind paying that penalty fee like i mean if we if we're going to get if if the health network's going to get a good quality doctor that that's worked as a locum for 3 or 4 months and they know that they're good you know clinically it makes complete sense to get that doctor on board because the, uh, you know, the, yes, the buyout fee might be 20 grand, whatever it is, but that's 20 grand well spent as opposed to, you know, getting locums on a permanent basis. So that that's really important if you're a doctor listening in. What about cancellations, Ryan? So let's say if I'm a locum and due to extraordinary circumstances or whatever it is, I cancel a shift for a hospital um, can you talk a bit about that process, but also what happens if the hospital cancels a shift? Is there differences in the way that you would handle that? Yeah, so again, different differs in every location, and it's a lot of the um, terms and conditions are actually dictated to us by the states and territories. We, yep. we try and negotiate to something that's more amicable, etc. But ultimately, the, there has been various different cancellation policies and clauses that are put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, we try and negotiate around these when these events happen because it's not really in anyone's interests for there to be penalties being pushed in different directions. We're, we're in a very fluid, complex environment. Yeah, uh, you know, it could the the, do, the doctor may have had to cancel because of something that's not entirely not their fault. 
Um, it could be a life issue, issue, a personal issue. It could be a flight change, whatever it might be. There's a myriad of, re of reasons that it could be. And it is quite rare. Um, I, I don't know if you see that in, in your previous roles, uh, Dev, in, in terms of locums cancelling, but thankfully we find locum cancellation is very rare. It's, it's, it's quite rare and the ones that have cancelled have had almost always a personal event. Uh, almost always the doctor has said, look, I really can't do it because someone's sick in the family and I need to be there. It's very rare. I've had, I've had a couple of instances which has left a really bad taste in my mouth. This is, you know, in, in, in my past life at a different health network where the locums cancelled and, and basically said, well, I just got a better offer. So see you later. I'm going to go do the better offer. That left me in a really bad taste because I was working for a small hospital where I didn't have any other choice. If the locum didn't rock up, guess who had to do the shift? It was me. <laughs> it was <just> like <laughs> bloody hell. Um, but, but you're right. A large proportion of cancellations, which are very rare in the first place, are due to a genuine good reason um, because the locums just can't do it. Yeah. So with the um, with the with the other better offer, we're hearing more about that from the clients, but we're not seeing it in in our world. So, but it, I don't know whether it's uh, there's been a few instances of it that have then been same same old story of if something good happens, not many people talk about it. If something bad happens, mm. ten people talk about it. Whether it's like that, but fortunately we don't see it. We we find that most doctors, and thankfully so, when they've given their word and whatever it might be, they generally follow through on that commitment. And and thank goodness our world's complicated enough. We wouldn't want too many more moving parts. But in terms of cancellation, if there is some form of cancellation in place that would be liable to the, the agency or the doctor or whatever it might be, we try our utmost to avoid that happening. Usually the hospitals aren't really that keen to enforce it because they're needing our services, they're needing the doctor's services. If they start dishing out cancellation fees when somebody has had a genuine personal issue, it's not going to do the mm. reputational situation much good. On the other side of the fence as well, we very rarely see hospitals cancel because if you think about it, the very few instances where a hospital would cancel unless there's been a double booking um, or somebody's cancelled their leave. That might be two of the most common ones, I suspect. And again, we very rarely see it. Um, and quite often in that case, because it has actually usually been an error on that side of, um, of the arrangement, we have seen um, you know, hospitals offer to either honour whatever agreement is in place or step in and say, please, can you tell Dr X I'm very sorry and please let them know that we, you know, we're going to honour X, Y or Z. Um, but again, very rare. Um, mm. I've I'm, I'm no longer a direct recruiter, but I've placed hundreds and hundreds of doctors over the years into locum jobs. And, um, uh, you know, I can probably count on, you know, a couple of hands, <laughs> maybe not one hand, but certainly a couple of hands, um, the amount of times that uh, that it's happened. Yeah. So I've, I've actually made the mistake of double booking uh, doctors. Uh, and my philosophy is if it's my fault and I'll have to wear it, then that particular day we're overstaffed. Great. Everyone has a nice day with an extra doctor doing extra work. Um, <laughs> you know, people make mistakes. We're human, uh, you know. Uh, so, you know, shit happens, I suppose. And I've, I've, I've actually done it myself. In fact, it happened um, recently, a few months ago. And um, we were able to, you know, speak to the doctor and um, able to rejig some rosters and we were a little bit overstaffed. Then that's just the way it is, yeah. Now, another question about a locum arriving to a shift and then all of a sudden or maybe a few days before the shift all of a sudden the hospital changes the mind let's say I'm an ED locum and I'm booked in at hospital A and it's a rural hospital and there's no ward coverage uh, expectation during the booking but then like a couple of days before the shift or you know even on the day the hospital goes oh by the way the, the ward doctor didn't show up um, can you just cover the ward as well while you're covering ED? Now, for listeners out there, obviously this kind of doesn't happen in metro hospitals. This happens not uncommonly in the rural hospitals, which are very short-staffed and sometimes a ward resident calls in sick or something. Have you ever been in that situation? And, um, you know, obviously, again, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of thousands of locum doctors online that I, that I um, see posts about. It's a common frustration uh, from doctors. Hey, look, I was contracted to work in the ED. Now you're telling me I might have to work outside of my scope on the ward covering, you know, Jerry's or something like that. So has that ever happened in your experience? And if that does happen, then does the doctor have every right to say, well, in which case pay me for that job as well? 
for that day. In some very rare cases, I have seen the doctor paid for both jobs. Very rare. Um, more often than not, um, it's the same situation with how frequent do these things happen and how reasonable is all the parties and the way that it's managed. Um, if a doctor goes somewhere and it happens once, you know, it's, it can be excusable. If they start going there once or twice, uh, more further locum stints and it becomes more frequent as a, a, you know, a, a trend or a pattern, then it'd be quite common that the doctor will either rightfully so request it be rectified or no longer work there and choose somewhere else to work and the, these those hospitals obviously they're under a massive pressure at that time they're not wanting to put the doctor in that situation it's uh it's a complicated mix but it's I, we have had doctors as well and again rightfully so and I, I don't blame them that have gone into that situation and refused to do the work um, and on some occasions that has meant that they um, stay within there designated department or scope that they were working in and on other occasions it has meant that they've not continued locuming there with immediate effect so you know again and i understand why if you know if they don't want to do it they don't want to do it um, well it becomes a scope of practice issue right because if i'm a, a doctor who does mainly ed work or surgical work then i'm expected to cover within that scope of practice um then if you know, on the day if I'm told, hey, you need to cover someone on the ward who's, you know, who's a gen med patient, then scope of practice becomes an issue because I'm not an expert in dealing with, you know, the delirious um, 77-year-old patient on the ward, right? I mean, that's a sort of a separate issue if I'm contracted to do surgical registrar, for example. So I can understand the hospital side of things, you know, coming from a hospital bureaucracy point of view, which I am one of those. But I can also understand from a doctor's point of view, it's like, hey, you know, would I work in a field of specialty that I'm not trained in? Um, Because if I make a mistake, well, guess what? I'm responsible for that mistake and APRA will be all over me like a rash and, uh, you know, potentially, you know, I'll, I'll be reprimanded for something that I tried to do the right thing by doing an extra job, right? So it's a really, really tricky fine line. But you're right, it's not very common. Yeah, I've I've never seen it at senior specialist level, for example, a certain type of specialty being asked to work in another form of specialty, because again, they would they would instantly be in a situation where they're out of scope and potentially potentially not insured. Mm. You know, so it's um it's a complex area. Where you're more common to see it is in the more junior end of the market. Um, with general registered and um, non-specialist doctors where they might be more interchangeable between different departments. But then it's more of a preference thing. If they're trying to upskill in or, or gain more work exposure in, for example, emergency, they might not want to be in wards or vice versa. Where you do see more of it, though, as well, it might be in the senior um, rural GP space where they're ultimately being employed for one or the other but they do have the scope and the skill set just to cross both by the nature of them them being in general practice. That's that's quite common. Um, mm. Sorry, mm. common's the wrong word. That's that's more 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 of a, a, an occurrence that you might see more so than the than the other. Likely, like I, I remember locuming as a surgical registrar. <laughs> I remember the uh, I remember the hospital sort of asking me, oh, you'd be able to cover C-sections, wouldn't you? I mean, in case there's an obstetrics emergency. And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> like, hell no. You you got me down as a surgeridge for these 10 days and you pay me as a surgeridge. Happy to do appendixes and gallbladders and laparotomies, but not a C-section. Thank you very much. You know, it's a bit of a disaster. Now- Goodness me. Yeah, no, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately we don't see that very often. I, I think this is a while ago. So, um, so it, it, it thankfully doesn't happen as much nowadays. Now, coming back to income. So this is something that a lot of lot of locum doctors uh, who are listening in are very interested in. Now, I know that the cost of locum doctors has gone up, as has the cost of locum nurses, agency nurses. Locum, I mean, I, I actually flew to Tasmania recently and the guy that was sitting next to me was a locum optometrist and he was telling me how much his specialty is in demand. He was flying from Melbourne uh, to Tasmania for an optometry locum position and he was telling me I'm getting paid all these rates and I'm getting paid the flights, the accommodation. I get to have a three-week holiday, Dev. It was fantastic. So generally speaking, healthcare has been in demand uh, for two reasons. Healthcare workers have resigned because of the pandemic, just over and done with it. And also the shortage of you know, healthcare workers, because, you know, the borders have been shut down. So therefore, not many of us um, coming from overseas, uh, you know, particularly from countries like the UK and and Western Europe and and North America. So certainly that has driven up the, the rates on an hourly basis. Can you talk a little bit about when locum agencies advertise a specific rate? 
that's the rate for the doctor is my understanding. But there's also, I mean, how do you guys get paid as a locum agency? Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Um, obviously, if there's any trade secrets, keep it to yourself. You don't have to say specific numbers. But I'm just curious because that figure is only for the doctor is my understanding. It's not for it's not the total figure that includes your pay as well. Yeah, so, so by and large, the locum rates that you see advertised, they've been um, passed out from the hospital to the agencies. They, they're dictating what rates that they would wish to pay the doctors. We're very, very little involved in the actual uh, determination of the pay rate for the doctor um, in most locations. And, and, and again, um, I'm very pleased about that fact. I come from another recruitment sector back in the UK where we used to have to get involved in negotiating the rates with every single uh, contractor. And we, as I say, we have enough complications in our local market without also having to get too involved in the pay rates. So then each state and territory or each individual hospital or each individual LHD and to any depth of it, whichever it might be, um, the agencies have all got um, individual agreements of a percentage um, usually on top of that rate, um, which we call our margin. Um, so we have a, a fixed agreement with the hospital margin that goes up and down with the pay rate of the doctor. and. Um, with the, as I mentioned before in last week's episode, the costs for the business are proportional to the doctor's pay, particularly if we're payrolling the doctor. So the more money that we pay a doctor, the higher our insurance costs are, that's our PI, our PL, the higher our work cover contributions can be and the higher our, um, for example, you know, whatever it might be, payroll tax and those types of things all cost. So it's all proportional. In, in recruitment terms, it's what's called on costs. Um, some people may be familiar with that. Um, but yeah, the, the rates are presented to us by the hospital. If we can find a doctor that will work for that rate, all, all good, everyone's happy. If we can't, the hospital may decide to, uh, getting feedback from multiple agencies, they may decide to increase the rate. It's, it's, it's fundamental supply and demand that's going on. Um, during COVID, the rates jumped, I mean, minimum 30, 40, 50, if not 60% in some places. I've got mm. examples which I won't list here of where they, they may have jumped 150, 200% in some mm. um, certain areas for certain things for certain periods of time. There was a perception going around that this was being partially driven by the locum agencies, but um, I'm, I can't speak for all locum agencies, but it's certainly not. It's not in our interest to be putting any form of extra pressure onto the healthcare system, which is already massively stretched. A um, couple of points, I suppose, on the overall rate piece. Um, the rates in the local market were fairly fixed for the previous 10, 11 years prior to COVID. That's quite a commonly said statement at the moment, and I think it's fairly true. Um, so there was this gentle increase in rates that was actually happening before COVID, but it wasn't as noticeable. And then when COVID kicked in, you've got a, a com accumulation of multiple events that have all come together at once with the need for doctors significantly increasing, the options of work with the vax clinics, with the testing centers, the borders closing, doctors jumping out potentially before the borders closed, doctors that may have been overseas being stuck for a period of time. And then you had the situation with the junior doctors that usually do the cohort from the UK and Ireland, about 1500 of them come in every year, that 1500 predominantly didn't make it into the country. And that in itself was quite a chunk of um, some of the um, some of the main hospital system, which uh, which flows through. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, we had some very dedicated doctors that made the decision to move into state to the state where they worked as opposed to where they lived. And they accepted the fact that they were going to be getting locked into their work state as opposed to their living state. And mm. um, we had others that that wasn't an option for them. We had some people that retired out of the workforce. And again, don't I don't blame them. It's a personal choice that they made because of the situation that was unfolding. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot going on and, uh, and coupled with that rolling through for two years during COVID, it has put a significant push on the rates. We have now seen the rates soften somewhat in the last um, three, four months, not back to the pre-COVID levels. Um, I don't know whether we will or won't go back to the pre-COVID levels. And again, it won't be, it won't be myself or the locum agencies that will be um, involved in the, being the architects of that. Right. Yeah. So this is something that a lot of doctors didn't didn't realise, and I only 
found out a bit later in my career that the locum agencies have very little to do with the rates. Um, I only found that out as a, a, as a director where I would be dictating the rates or, you know, my bosses would be dictating the rates. And we had this little algorithm. So basically four weeks out, this would be the rate. Three weeks out, this would be yeah. the rate. Two weeks out, this would be the rate. And one week out, this would be the rate. And one day out, this would be the rate. So it was like an algorithmic way. So for a lot of doctors listening in, it might be news that that algorithm is actually quite difficult to change and it's dependent on the hospital. Your agent has no control over that particular algorithm. Uh, One of the things in Victoria that I'd like you to comment about is they they have signed this HSV contract. Um, So this is where, and and, and I'm Victorian based, so it's really frustrating. From the hospital side of things, we can't just randomly jack up prices so we can get the doctors to come in three, four weeks at a time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because my understanding is the rates are fixed now and this is a presumably a drive to drive down the rates, uh, but it never works because we're still doctor short and the borders you know, obviously are open, but we don't have as many overseas trained doctors coming in. Can you talk about the Victorian situation a bit? Um, as much as I would love to, I, I think that is a topic that I probably can't talk about. Um, just by the nature of it, you know, we're we're a, we're a signed supplier to uh, to that contract. And sure. It probably wouldn't be it probably wouldn't be right for me to to talk about that. I'm afraid. Yep. But the but um, the fundamental thing for doctors to realise is, in Victoria, it has changed a little bit, um, and of course. A lot of it is out. Well, in fact, all of it is out of the control of the locum agency and your agent, and 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 most of it is actually out of the control of the hospital. So it's actually dictated by um, dictated by a third party. What do you think is going to happen in twenty twenty three with locum rates? Because you know borders are open. Presumably, are these fifteen hundred uh, UK uh, doctors coming in next year? Well, what's going to happen? Because uh, we we certainly miss them. <laughs> Because <laughs> they work hard, um, they turn up on time, and they never complain. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is the thing: the, these these guys that come in, you know, they're they're in a they're in an age bracket, they're on an adventure, you know, they 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 want to see the sights. They do a lot of the work that people don't want to do in some places after, especially after they've been here for twelve months and get their general registration, and then they can locum. So just to be clear, they can't locum from the outset when they come in. They have to take a fixed term twelve month position initially uh, on on a form of limited registration. Um, so they, that's why they, um, they, the, the states themselves often do recruitment drives in the UK and Ireland and various other places. Um, I think Australia has now got a challenge where it's got to remarket itself uh, to the world. And I think it needs to get on the front foot with letting people know that we're open for business. Um, I've been back to the UK twice this year, um, sorry, UK and Ireland twice. I caught COVID on both of those trips, which was an interesting experience. Um, so. The, the rhetoric in the UK and Ireland is that, uh, oh, you guys were locked in your houses and you weren't, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of, you know, quite negative connotations mm. or perceptions coming from, uh, from what went on in Australia. Now, as we know, some of that was partially true, but it was, it's nowhere near as, as bad as what the, the usual media has portrayed up mm. there and, and vice versa. I'm sure the stuff that we've witnessed here from the UK and Ireland that has been packaged up to be more dramatic than what it actually was. But, that's created an issue for Australia. Australia's one of the most furthest away from the UK and uh, UK and Ireland in terms of distance. With the fact that the airlines are still challenged, I don't know if, if many of the listeners will have um, been trying to fly internationally recently. And um, the flights are still, as we speak, restricted. The mm. schedules are still down. The tickets, the ticket prices are at least threefold what they were before COVID. Um, so it's we're hoping that that improves, but those things are causing people to view things differently the, pre- the the previous 12 month adventure of popping down here and seeing whether they like it and potentially staying doesn't look quite as attractive potentially i still think they'll come i still think they'll come mm. i mean i'm i'm in the game of trying i'm in the game of trying to make them come so uh, we'll uh, we'll be we'll be certainly seeing if we can um, if we can attract them and uh, and get them get them over um, but yeah, that, we do quite a bit of work with those guys as well. We, we, they come over for the 12 month fixed term position. They see it as a 12 month adventure, visit Australia. We start talking to them during that 12 months about options beyond into the second and third years. Um, we transfer some of those doctors over onto our own work visas at quite a significant cost and take on the liabilities and obligations of being an employment sponsor. And then, um, we, work with those guys and send them out to places that they want to see and, and 
take them on trips around the country and whatnot. And um, and quite often then, after they've been here for 24, 36 months, they maybe start to fall in love with the country in different ways. They view themselves as being more part of here versus back there and then become permanent doctors for Australia. And mm. uh, that's what we're, mm. we're trying, to achieve, trying to achieve here with some of them. Look, um, you know, shout out to Dr. PB, Dr. LC, you know who you are. You're part of the metabolic group, Dr. JD as well. Um, now, you know, all trained in the UK. They love it here. Um, they make a fair bit of quid here compared to, uh, compared to back home because generally the feedback that I get from, from doctors who are trained overseas in the UK, India, Southeast Asia um, that come here is that overall lifestyle here is better. The money that you earn is better. Um, the services are better. And generally, um, the conditions of working here are better. It's not unusual. I mean, I've done four months of training. Uh, I actually went back to India. I mean, I obviously, you know, brought up in Australia, born in India, but I actually went back just to see how it was four months in India. And the doctors that work there get slogged so bad. Um, the first thing my supervisor said to me is he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Melbourne. And he said, are you going to be able to deal with working six days a week, 14 hours a day? Because that's what we do and that's quite normal. And I'm like, okay, if you tell me that's normal, I'll have a go. Um, and <laughs> when they come to Australia from Southeast Asia, India and the UK. I mean, in the UK, doctors work a significant amount of hours compared to what we do here. They come here and they're like, hey, Dev, 10-hour shifts, walk in the park because, you know, back home in, in, uh, back home in the UK or back home in Sri Lanka in India, you know, 18-hour shifts are the norm. <laughs> so they're like, what are you guys complaining about? You get paid twice as much as we do. You get better uh, award rates, you get better conditions and uh, better superannuation. Uh, what is there to complain about? So shout out to all the international medical graduates who, who have come here and, and, you know, without all of you, I think we'd be pretty stuffed to be honest. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it, it's been, it's been really good to deal with, um, deal with um, overseas trained doctors as well. Now we'll just have a quick break. And when we come back, I've got just a few more questions, Ryan, and then we, and then we're officially close it out. Locum opportunities overseas. We're going to talk about what are the things that some of the things that doctors should look out for when dealing with locum agencies, and also, you know, what about non-doctor locums, which one medical may or may not be involved in. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, we're back. Now, question from the Facebook group was, what about locum agencies overseas? Is there much scope for travel and work opportunities for an Aussie doctor to go to Europe, for example, or Southeast Asia and work there? Um, do you guys do much of that or how do you see that? Yeah, so the, we do, we do. Um, there, there's being by the nature of a doctor, the being a doctor, all the opportunities are there, but by being the nature of a doctor, you do have the technicalities of having to navigate the um, cross border medical systems, mm. um, which is something that we historically specialize in. Um, we have an office set up in Ireland, uh, in Dublin, uh, with a small team set up there uh, during, during COVID, we set that up. Um, and we are now 
actively working the Irish market and placing locum permanent doctors into Ireland from both within Ireland and from outside of Ireland. Um, I'd have to check where we're up to, but I think we've got our first one or two uh, Australian doctors which are going over for a, for a form of a bit of an extended working holiday for a couple of months. Quite often, though, people have got personal reasons why they want to go mm. there. It's not just for the work opportunity. You know, they may have a, a son or a daughter living in Ireland or living in the UK, which is obviously very nearby, or somewhere else in Europe, um, or they want to travel and that type of thing. So it's obviously, it's very difficult from Australia to go up to Europe back and forth and do lots of trips because of the distance. But if you did take work in the UK or Ireland, you can technically work and uh, in an on-off pattern and and, and visit Europe on, the, on your doorstep. Mm. Um, so yes, if, if people are interested in that, we can help. Um, fundamentally, the money is less. Australia is one of the main markets in the world of the highest paid for doctors, um, along with a few others like Canada and various other places. Um, but, uh, but again, probably isn't going to be all about the money, why the person is deciding to go there. And um, it's a process. It's like getting involved in locum work. You know, you, if you've never done locum work before, you're going to have to go through the paperwork process, but we can take you through that process end to end. And we specialize in trying to make it as simple as possible and as easy as possible, because the more difficult it is, the less likely you are to do it. And um, so there are opportunities there. And Australian doctors can get into Ireland relatively easy. And um, there's no form of um, examination in many cases or anything like that, as opposed to the other way where um, the competent authority pathway coming into Australia doesn't have an exam. But there's a lot of doctors working in the UK and Ireland that don't meet the competent authority pathway to come over here. Um, again, going as a specialist versus a non-specialist is a different story, same as if you were entering Australia. So as a specialist, you'll have to go through some form of college process. Um, but there's, there's, there's ways and means around that, not around it, sorry, but there's alternatives that people can do. For example, we have seen senior emergency specialists before go over there and work as a non-specialist emergency doctor and avoid the college process and work as a non-specialist and that type of thing. Right. So so just, just picking up on that point. So it's easier for an Australian trained doctor to work in Ireland, but the other way around, if you're an Irish trained doctor to come here and work, it's harder for them, is it? Correct, yeah. Now, for, in general, yeah, for an Irish trained doctor coming over here is, re- is a relatively straightforward process through the competent authority pathway. They don't have to sit any forms of exams or anything like that, um, but they will be restricted to uh, an initial 12 months um, fixed-term permanent position under a form of um, supervision, etc. Whereas going the other direction, um, you technically can go and locum uh, oh, as an Australian trained uh, graduate. Yeah, I would have thought the other way around. Okay, yeah, yeah, it, it evolves, you know, and it, it, as the healthcare systems around the world decide to do different things depending what outcomes they're trying to get, they they increase and decrease the bar for different countries and specialisms and, and skill sets, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like, like the locum rates, it's ever evolving. <laughs> right, right. Now, we have, you know, thousands of medical students, interns, RMOs, resident medical officers or junior medical officers, registrars listening in. And dare I say, it would be unusual. Well, I wouldn't say unusual, but, you know, I would always recommend junior doctors to locum while they're training. Uh, yes, it's difficult. Yes, your training time is quite hard. Yes, you need to study. Uh, but the way I see it um, from a learning perspective, from a financial perspective, time off is opportunity cost. And when I was a registrar in the training program, I locumed a lot and I learned a lot because you, you, you tend to put yourself in situations where Often you're working in regional remote areas and you have to make clinical decisions and you can really refine your clinical skills. You've got to be a little bit careful about scope of practice and don't do anything silly. Um, But I would always encourage uh, your junior doctors to go out and locum and and experience that. So if I'm a resident medical officer, second year out, just finished internship, maybe third year out, and I'm looking for locum opportunities, what are some of the things that I should be looking for in an agency? Because there's so many agencies out there. So what should I be looking for when selecting an agency, maybe two or three? Uh, Perhaps if you can give us some tips about what are some of the things that, um, that they should be looking for. Just don't look at other agencies. Just come to one medical, and then <laughs> your problem solved. You know? Right answer. Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> um, I mean, 
just just touching on the sort of the the safety and the scope and stuff like that before we go into the agencies our a, a well-trained recruitment and experienced recruitment team should be trying to probe those issues before they become issues and um, i regularly hear guys on our floor um working on the phone with the doctors saying you know do you think you'll be comfortable in the following situation and if, if there's any doubt around it we will put the doctor on the phone with the equivalent of somebody like yourself in the mm. hospital or wherever it might be because nothing's going to be to doctor to doctor conversation to get down to the reality of what the work is like and um, we've had situations where then the doctor the locum doctor is much more reassured and relaxed and and enjoyed we've had situations where all parties have gone i think i better choose somewhere else for my first mm. uh, first time or whatever it might be and um, i mean i would advise doctors to ask around we get we get a lot of um uh, word of mouth referrals because we as, as i said in last episode we we generally tend to work with the same doctors over and over for quite a long period of time on and off as they go through their career so they will often come out and do the odd few shifts as a junior doctor and then they'll get a gap in their training and they'll do a month or two and then we won't see them again for six months while they're back in training and then They'll, they'll come out again the following year. Then they might take a full year out of their training because they want to get some cash in the bank and um, pay for the usual life expenses that are now racking up as they're starting to get um, older in their in, in their life. Um, so we see them come in and out of different types of stages. But I mean, asking around and seeing who the other doctors that they're connected to have worked with or know of, we, we're regularly getting these referrals through now, which is great because one would hope that that is showing that we're doing a good service for these doctors. Because um, ultimately, if we're not doing a good service for these doctors, then we're, we're not going to be uh, be here for the long haul. Um, so I'd ask around. Um, you can also get usually get a very a fairly good feel for an agency off the basics uh, the basis of their website um, if the website looks like it's up to date and current and has got multiple features and news and all different jobs posted on it and recent news articles and stuff going on you can tell it's a loved website that's usually a sign that the agency is quite active and offering multiple services um, reading the google reviews um, again it's it's Google reviews are coming directly off people's Google accounts. Um, so you can, if you go on our website or go on Google and, and Google One Medical, et cetera, you can see um, 50, 60 doctors of various different specialties and skills with some of them giving real accounts of what, what, um, what their experience has been. Double checking that they've got all the frills that you might need. So, do they have all the different payment types that you need? You know, do they have um, all the different type of work options? Um, for your UK and Irish cohort that you were giving the uh, the shout out to before the the the, the UK crew, um, access to visas. If it's going to be something that they decide to do as a as a year gap, for example, further down the line, making sure that the agency um, can actually offer visas, etc. But. I, fundamentally it's when it gets down to how they feel i think when they speak to their relevant consultant because that's the relationship that they're going to be having you know the caliber of that consultant do they feel competent to walk you through the process are they able to answer your general questions give you a flavor of all of the parts that you're looking for um and you know once you've got that level of comfort i would i would stop then looking for other agencies until the agency maybe does something that you can't rectify and you don't like if that makes sense because mm -hmm. if you start going with multiple, multiple agencies, not only will you have so much more traffic in terms of your admin on top of your already busy life, you potentially become less favorable to the agency because yes, doctors are very important and we need them to be on board to get them out and working, et cetera, and try and help the hospitals. But if we feel that the doctor is playing us off against two or three different other agencies, et cetera, it can all get quite messy. Um, so it's, it's sort of a two-way relationship, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. And look, for, from from my perspective, I might chip in, hospitals talk to each other. So it's not unusual mm -hmm. that I would get a phone call and say, hey, Dev, we're thinking about this particular locum for maybe three or four months at this particular hospital. In their CV, they've sort of mentioned that they've worked at a hospital where you've worked there. Do you know them? Should we give them a job? Uh, should we give them that locum placement? That is surprisingly common and I do it a lot. I, I ring up my uh, counterparts at other places and go, hey, we, we've got a particular locum that's coming here. What do you think? Do you think I should uh, give it to them? It's quite amazing how that decision-making just makes or breaks whether that particular doctor gets a series of shifts or not. So if you treat people well and you treat agencies well and 
and treat hospitals well as a doctor, well, guess what? They'll treat you well <laughs> and, and you, you, you'll get the shifts you want and you'll make a lot of money. So it's all about respect and honesty and transparency, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's, not, it's not rocket science. It's treat, what is it? Treat unto those how you wish to be treated. Is that the uh, is that the saying? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and in healthcare, word of mouth. Yes, the 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 locum doctors talk amongst themselves about which agencies that you know they want to go with based on word of mouth. Well, guess what happens? Agencies can potentially talk amongst themselves. Hospital, uh, uh, you know, directors and 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 consultants and 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 talk amongst themselves as well. So it kind of works across the entire, you know ecosphere of, of healthcare. And I think if we all sort of just try and be honest and transparent and do the right thing, then it'd be a lot easier for everyone. Indeed, I agree. Last question, do you do any non-doctor locums like pharmacy, optical, physio, nurses, or do you just do medical? We just do medical. We just strictly do medical doctors. And um, to, to people that aren't in recruitment, it might sound a bit strange, but it would literally be like a running entirely separate business just to um, do nurses as opposed to doctors, never mind when you start going further afield from uh, from the hospital network. So same way that um, we specialise into the medical specialties, we just have the business focused on doctors. Um, we may yep. choose to expand or create another brand or another separate business into other areas um, further down the line. Um, if people are listening that do have people of those skill sets that are looking for work, we do have a few um extended network friends of uh, friends and colleagues that uh, do work in these fields and we can quite often pass details back and forth and do referrals etc and just try and put people in touch with each other to help them out um, we we quite often get a uh, doctor and nurse combos as well um going mm. out into the into the locum space and um we'll often be we'll be focused on placing the doctor and uh, on that process especially in the rural areas there might be a, a, a move from the hospital to try and also secure the nurse and and we just we just step back and say great fantastic that you've got a an extra an extra pair of hands a two for one deal for one of a better phrase yeah so if you are a nurse or an allied health worker listening in and you're a locum um, please tell your agency to contact me because I'm curious because I have spoken to a number of agency nurses and the way their system works, as, as Ryan said, is actually completely different. Like the way they get paid, the way everything else works in the nursing world is completely different. And when I spoke to this dude, um, you know, shout out to whoever you are, if you're listening in, um, I'm not even, I can't even remember whether I told him who I was, but, um, uh, the optician that went to Tassie to do a locum, I think his pay rates and his the, the way they do it is completely different. So if you're a locum agency owner or if you're a nurse that uh, or allied health worker that works for a locum agency and you want them to come on board as a guest, I'm really keen to get their perspective because I think this show is not just for doctors, it's for everyone uh, And because I, I just happen to know uh, one medical, so I got Ryan in uh, uh, today. Now, just... Um, well, first of all, Ryan, thank you very much for coming on the show. You know, we're up to hour and 50 minutes in total. That's going to be split up into two parts. Um, so really appreciate it. And I, I just want it to be open and honest and transparent. One Medical has not paid for this episode. I think it's really important that this is not a sponsored episode. I don't get paid to do this. I just happen to know uh, Nick from One Medical that I've had uh, contact with for a few years and that's how Ryan got involved and, and this this interview was actually scheduled about, you know, I think, what was it, Ryan, about two or three months ago we, we, we started talking about this because there was a real appetite uh, from the medical community, from the, from the locum uh, doctors on Facebook who really wanted me to ask these specific questions to someone in the locum agency space and the only person I kind of knew was Ryan and Nick from One Medical. And that's how it came about. Yeah, we it's it's been a, it's been a pleasure. We, we're always keen to try and share sort of as much information as we can because we truly are in the game of trying to be as open and transparent as we possibly can be. Because there's no there's no real benefits to anybody for not being so, and it is important, especially when it comes to stuff like rates, because this the perception that keeps going around that we're involved in them is by and large not the case, and uh, we wouldn't want anyone to think that. Um, so it's it's good to have this opportunity to uh, to chat and uh, and hopefully hopefully share some views and information back around and, uh, and and everyone learns a bit more. No worries. Thank you very much, Ryan. And and maybe your website we'll just link in the show notes as well for people to to log on to if you're a budding locum yeah. that wants to try out One Medical, go ahead and try them out. So really appreciate really appreciate your time coming on. Please do. 
Please, please do. There's there's one thing, Deb, actually quickly I forgot to mention throughout this that we do as well, which might be of interest to some listeners, is um we're one of the few we were one of the first, I think we're actually the first agency that started doing the carbon offsetting for all of the locum activity. So as you can imagine, we rack up a large amount of flights, car hires, travel and accommodation stays. So when locums do work by us, we offset that entirely with a not-for-profit charity and they are planting trees trying to save the world. So um so that's been quite a, a, a selling point to quite a lot of doctors knowing that that side of things is also taken care of from them so um it's been uh, been good to do that and uh, we've even even had one of the other directors out on a tree planting day so uh it can one day we're going to get the uh, the doctors involved when we get the opportunity to go and plant some trees i think that's fantastic uh look i've said it before climate change is real it's happening it's really important that we you know protect the planet that is uh helping us uh, live and and feeding us so that's a really really honorable thing so that i'm happy that you shared that uh with the audience because you know <laughs> making money and 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 traveling and and, and locuming is important but uh, it's got to be done in a sustainable way. So congratulations on that. That's a really innovative uh, innovative way to uh, promote to your doctors. And I think, I mean, generally, the medical community generally are appreciative of anything to do with uh, planet care. Um, so that's really important. So Ryan, once again, thank you very much for your time and uh, really appreciate you giving us uh, a couple of hours of your time. My pleasure. Now, for all the audience, thank you very much for listening in. Um, so just remember, if you like what you uh, hear and if you want to get in touch with me, Facebook or Twitter is the main way. And thank you to all of those that have already done that. And also, don't forget to leave a five-star review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the podcasting platforms you may be listening to or all of the podcasting platforms. That's even better. So until next time, my name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe and make sure you like them, or you junior doctors, <laughs> make sure you like them. Till next time. Thank you. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.